Living, best-selling author, personal trainer, and host of Give Me Strength, where we discuss the positives of living a stronger life physically and mentally with the hope to inspire you to do the same. Welcome to Give Me Strength. Sophie Morgan is a BAFTA-nominated TV presenter, producer, writer, disability rights advocate, and artist. As one of the first female wheelchair users globally to host TV, Sophie is transforming the representation of disability on screen and can be seen anchoring live sports such as the Paralympics, fronting in her own primetime travel series and hard-hitting current affairs documentaries, as well as being a regular guest on one of my favorites, ITV's Loose Women. She has recently co-founded Making Space Media with Keely Catwells, and it is Making Space Media that has signed a first look deal with none other than Reese Witherspoon's media company, Hello Sunshine, to focus on producing TV and film, as well as creating accessible educational and promotional content for education, travel, and media. Now, Sophie is recognized among the top 10 most influential disabled people in the UK and serves on advisory boards for Human Rights Watch, speaks at the United Nations, and more recently, the White House, which we'll come on to, and acts as a patron for Scope and Backup. She is also currently spearheading the global disability rights campaign, Rights on Flights, which has recently taken her, as I just said, to the White House to meet the president. Sophie, what an introduction. I'm like in awe of you. How are you? You must be exhausted with all that stuff you've got going you know, on listening to it I'm like oh my god I'm tired just listening to it it's a lot <laughs> it's a lot Alice it's a lot but it is great things are really great they're exactly where I want them to be I can complain till the cows come home about how little sleep I have and how stressful how stressed out I feel and all of those things that we all have in modern life but I'm not going to I'm just going to say things are where I wanted them to be I've worked really hard to get to this point so just got to strap and enjoy the ride it's just been a lot it's been a lot lately. Yeah, I can imagine. And it's really nice when you hear someone like, like you don't hear many people that go, I'm exactly where I need to be right now. That's such a nice way to be able to come back to something. And I think that I I look at you and I'm obviously from the peripheral because I'm just viewing you on social media and now just like having that little chat that I just had with you then. But but how nice. What a nice feeling. As well as being overwhelming and stressful. <laughs> you know what? It's, thanks for saying that because it's important, I suppose, to hear it back from, from what I just said. I mean it. It's been a really difficult ride the journey to get here it's been really complicated with so many difficult setbacks and curveballs and you know life has lifed me really hard but then I kind of look and I go gosh I've been so lucky at the same time and I think because I'm constantly checking in with myself um I do think I have deliberately got myself to where I am at the only thing I would say is that I have a tendency to bite off more than I can chew which is where I get into this problem of I, I think I've, I'm doing too much, but I certainly know that if I look back and said to my younger self and, uh, along the journey, you're going to get to this point, I'd be go, I'd say, just keep going because this is where you want to be. So yeah, it's, it's good. <laughs> really, really lovely feeling and so nice to see. Now, look, I think that one of the things that will be really important to do today is that for those who are listening, who might not know much about you, I'd love for you to be able to take us back and kind of talk to us about the start of your journey and all of the work that you've continued doing. And if you're comfortable to it, it'd be really nice to hear what that kind of moment was like when you were 18, when your life sort of changed. And if you're able to kind of share a bit more about that experience. Yeah, of course. Because in many ways, that's where it all began. And I was 18 years old and I was just about to leave. I just left school, sorry. And it was the summer of 2003 and I basically, I was at a party celebrating my A-level results. 
So it's in the summer of 2003. And I think for anybody listening who's either at that age or remembers that time, it's such an exciting, like heady um, experience just when you leave school. You're kind of just at that point where you're sort of leaving childhood and stepping into adult life. And the possibilities do feel overwhelming, but sort of endless at the same time. And I think for me, certainly I was really, as an 18 year old girl, extremely excited about the future, wanting to get into the world. So what happened was the night um, I was celebrating the A-levels, I left the party with a group of friends. And as I was driving onto someone's home, basically I lost control of my car and I drove up into a verge on the side of the road, which burst the tire and the car then rolled and flipped and just landed in a field and in that crash a number of things happened so firstly my face got very badly damaged um I lost my uh, my eye socket was crushed my jaw was very badly damaged my nose was all but completely gone it was crushed by the steering wheel my skull was broken various other problems but the worst of the impact really was that my spine got momentarily moved my vertebrae twisted in the impact and I was instantly paralyzed from the chest down at the point where your seatbelt sort of holds you close. So if you can imagine where that is and where it crosses over you in the middle of your body, that's exactly where my spine was damaged. So I was rushed into hospital and um, very nearly died. Uh, in fact, at one point, I think I did nearly die. I, I, I had what I call a near-death experience. Um, it was extraordinary, t- extraordinary time. I won't go into all of the details because it's long, but basically was flown down to London from where I had the, the car crash, which was in Scotland. Um, I was flown down to London to a, a specialist hospital where I w- my spine was instantly fused, which is what basically they do for people with spinal injury. They put two metal rods um, and lots of screws into your spine to fuse you still so you don't do any further damage. But the damage was done um, at that point. And I went into rehabilitation to be told I'd never walk again, but... That was just really, if I'm honest, the least of my problems. The the learning curve as to what actual paralysis and spinal cord injury involved began then. And, you know, it's like I said earlier, it's been a journey ever since. So I did three months of rehabilitation, which just to explain what that means, it's not exactly like rehabilitation where you're recovering. I wasn't recovering any of my body. My my paralysis was permanent and unchanging and, and what we call complete So there's different types of paralysis, but mine means that you have no movement and no sensation from the level of your injury down. So the learning then about what I could still do was the process of like the rehabilitation. So I was adapting to my circumstances as they were. It wasn't a case of going into physio and trying to rebuild my body. There was no amount of exercise or um, intervention at that stage that would have helped me regain my physical function or, or, or feeling. So it was just about, you know, learning the basics, how to get into a wheelchair, how to get dressed, how to wash yourself, how to manage everything from my, because when you're paralyzed, you lose the ability to listen to your body. You can't, the messages don't get through. So everything from regulating your temperature to feeling if you're in pain, to knowing if you need the toilet, to any of those things goes like that. So it's a massive relearning of how to look after your body. Um, and yeah, those first three months in hospital were extraordinary learning all the things that I could still do but the real learning came the minute I stepped out of hospital well rolled out of hospital more accurately um and tried to integrate back into the world again as a wheelchair user and uh yeah that was that was the hard bit (laughs) the real hard bit yeah yeah I can imagine um I guess one of the things that I'm I'm really 
keen to understand is is the age at which you experienced your injury. Um, I think that you described the kind of the time leading up to that, that, um, you know, you were this kind of heady and excited teenager, which I can totally understand. And I'm wondering what your headspace was in that three months, you know, oh, yeah. who, who was there for your recovery? What was your kind of mindset like? Who, who was there to kind of, I guess, prop you up and keep you going? Um, because I guess as a teenager, you know, at any age, an injury like that is devastating and, and challenging. But when your life mm. feels like it's just beginning, Thing, that must have been really cha- really challenging. Well, it's funny you say that because I think in hindsight, there were there were advantages to having my injury at that age. Of course, there were many disadvantages and I'll go into the disadvantages and, and who supported me. But I think just to start with, the advantages of having it at that age were really that I, I didn't have a life yet. I was a blank canvas. And I think, you know, I didn't have a, I had a boyfriend, but I didn't have a partner or children or a job, really. I mean, I worked in a local pub, but do you know what I mean? I didn't have a career. There was not a lot to lose in that respect. But of course, what came with the paralysis and the injury and everything was the change of identity. And at that age, when you're 18 years old and you don't know who you are really yet, you think you know everything, but you don't know anything, you know, that feeling of like, who am I? was further compounded by the fact that I was disabled. So, you know, I, I was just working that out. I was just taking these baby steps into life and then boom, everything changed. So for me, I really struggled to work out where I was and who I was in the context of disability. So to start with, to be able to get back to my old self, as I kind of thought of it, was I just clung on to everyone in my life, like you, like a koala, you know, I was like, hugging everybody I couldn't let go of my old friends from school who I'd grown up with or kids that I had known since child really really young you know friends that knew me in the before knew me in this time before my injury I needed to hold on to them desperately so that they could kind of tell me who I was and and remind me that even though everybody around me looked at me differently I could still be the same person do you know what I mean that was something that was really integral to me but then also my family I mean my mum's a nurse she was a nurse um and so she was she was a rock for me um she still is and and so for, to have her guidance and insight at that time was inf- unbelievably important um and her humor as well there was a lot of funny times in the darkness as well my brother my father like the they were they were all there for me at that moment and i i was so blessed and the truth is when you've got a family that actually know how to to support you, then anything is kind of possible. I think it's my greatest resource. You know, people kind of ask me how I do it and how I did it. And I will always say it's because of those friends and family. And that's changed now. Now I can do for myself. I don't need as much support, but then I couldn't have done anything without them. So that was, and it was wonderful to know that I could test the people in my life and see who could stand up to that test at such a young age. so of course, some people let me down. The the men in my life have always been really tricky, but my girlfriends and my family are unbelievably supportive. Yeah, that is just so wonderful to hear. And you're absolutely right. I think that everything in our lives is about who supports us and, and yeah. you know, the people that come to you when when you're in your most, you know, difficult states can be the people that you really do cling on to and, and just like value more than ever before. Um, you spoke about you know, the most difficult time, I guess, being after that three months, after leaving hospital and then having to take your first kind of, you know, 
few months yeah. and and days even uh, living life in in uh, quote unquote the real world um what was that like and I guess some of that has you know lit that fire within you to make change so I'm guessing it wasn't that easy of an experience oh, terrifying Alice it was like being in hospital is like a little bubble everyone's used to your disability everyone's surrounded by it you know it's not where I wanted to be certainly and I rushed as rushed and rushed to get out of there as soon as I could I've just gone from one institution aka school to another institution a hospital and I was like I'm itching to get out into the world so I really did rush getting out of hospital but what that meant was I came very I came face to face with the the barriers in society that I had absolutely no idea existed. I, di- I didn't. I didn't know about disability until I w- became disabled. I, I had no context. I had no friends who used wheelchairs. I didn't know anything about the disabled world. I didn't. It wasn't anything I had considered before. So when I came out of hospital and was suddenly confronted by these, I mean, honestly, endless. Everywhere I went, there was another problem. It was sort of. It was in, in, incredibly heartbreaking for me because I just. I was so eager to live my life to the full, you know, and do all this amazing stuff and travel and, you know, whatever it was I wanted to do at the time, I I felt like I couldn't do any of it. Um, So for the first challenge I found really are these sort of what what I now call the attitudinal barriers that disabled people like me have to deal with on a day-to-day basis, which is other people. Other people are actually really almost as bad as a lack of infrastructure, you know, so a lack of like physical access for a wheelchair user like me, it's one thing. And that's, that's, that goes without saying, right. That that's everywhere. That's really, really difficult in the UK. It's really challenging everywhere in the world. There's always a problem really, because the world's not, the world is not designed with wheelchair users in mind. Um, Not yet. Anyway, that's the work I'm doing to try and change that. But that was really, really hard for me to realize that that people would be stopping me from doing what I wanted to do more than actual, more than anything else, more than poor design or poor infrastructure. It would be people. So that process when I came out of hospital of debunking or challenging those societal perceptions around what a woman like me or a girl like me was capable of, that was my first, that was my sort of first thing to overcome. I had to try and work out for myself what was it that I could do and what was it that I couldn't do anymore in, on my own terms without somebody telling me? Because I tell you what, people really do have an opinion on what you can do if you're disabled and they love to tell you about it. Um, and that was, yeah, I think it helped that I was such a headstrong little girl. I was so like determined and motivated and like difficult. I was such a, I was a, what you call a difficult girl, you know, what at school and all that, getting in trouble a lot and all that. And I think that really helped me actually get through the early days where, yeah, everywhere was another no and I just wouldn't take it. On that, you know, we've spoken to quite a few people on this podcast who've had life-changing injuries. Martine Wright, yeah. I don't know if you know yeah. her, came to, you know, she was one of our first guests. Henry Fraser, who I um, actually went to school I with, who's just absolutely, Yeah, who's just absolutely wonderful. And it seems that within all of you, I see this kind of common thread of a deep sense of inner resilience and a commitment to not let what has happened to you hold you back. And it's interesting that you sort of said there that you had this fire within you to go out and live your life, but it was almost other people's kind of barriers that held you back. And I wonder 
what was it within you that kind of drove you to just keep going? You know, you could you could have come out of that situation and you could have just kept your world very, very small. Do you know what I mean? And, and, and I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that, but I'm just saying that that would be accepting the fate that other people were putting onto you. But actually what you did was go, well, hang on a second. I want to rewrite the narrative. I'm not going to listen to you. And, and I wonder where, you know, you describe yourself as a difficult girl. I, I, I kind of know what you mean, but I also think I'm going to, like, I love the word like fiery yeah, and like, you know, that you were, yeah. that you were feisty and I love that. And I wondered how you channeled that into not letting those barriers limit you and hold you back. Cause that must've been really hard. I, I do get asked this often and I wish I had a straight up answer for it because resilience is something that we all need. And and if we have it, I don't know if we know exactly where the source of it is. I, I often find myself thinking that my resilience came from this support network around me, that if there was a problem, collectively, we'd find a solution. And I think that that's part of it. The other part of it is certainly I... I was that kind of, as you say, difficult is a term that I don't actually, it gets used on women like me. It's not a term that I necessarily actually agree with. In fact, I probably think it's problematic. But the feisty side, the diff, the pushy side, the whatever you want to call it, that girl that we so often see um, contained or so, often, you know, like conditioned out of her behavior. I was one of those g- girls you might call kind of like wild, or whatever. And I think that what if for whatever reason that came around and we could go back into my childhood and try and dissect it all. But for a simplistic, for a simple answer, I think it just, there was a combination of ingredients that kind of set this sort of like recipe up that would allow me mm. to, to have the skills I needed. And when I realized I had those skills, for example, when something would happen and go wrong and I knew that I could actually find a way around it, it may, it reinforced to me, Oh, actually you can do that. You, you can So I'll give you an example. When I first came out of hospital, I had deferred, I was going to art school and I had deferred my year because obviously I'd had my injury. So when I went back, I'd got my place. But when I went back after I'd gone through rehabilitation and came out as a wheelchair user, I'd gone back to the college, the same college and to enroll for my, for my foundation year. And they said to me, you can't come now. I was like dumbfounded. They said, you can't come um, because you're a wheelchair user. And I, I remember just being, so naive at this point. I mean, this is totally normal. If you're a wheelchair user or someone with a disability listening to this, you'll know exactly what I mean. This is normal. I had no idea that that was normal, that you could discriminate in that way. I've been that sort of privileged in my life that I hadn't had to think about those sorts of, you know, my rights, right? So I, mm. <laughs> they said, no, you can't come. And I, I, I remember looking at my mum and being like, what do they mean I can't come? And she's like, I don't know that can't be right. So I remember we just called it, we called a family friend who was a divorce lawyer, nothing to do with human rights laws, civil rights laws, and said, look, what do we do? And he said, oh, there's this thing called the Dis- Disability Discrimination Act. Just throw that at them. Don't worry. About it. I'll cut, do you know what? I'll come with you. So we went down to the college, this lawyer, me and my mum, and just said, I'm sorry, but yeah, I don't think that's right. I don't think you can say I can't come. And I fought it and they changed and they made one of the classrooms out of 10 of the classrooms accessible so I could go and they put in a disabled toilet. And what that meant was two things. One, a year later, I got an email from a girl saying, thank you so much for doing that because now I can go. I'm a wheelchair user and I want, I, I can now go, which for me was pivotal. I had no idea that what could impact me could impact someone else. I was, I was still a kid. I was so sort of self-involved. And the other part of it was it made me realize I can fight 
and I know how to fight and I actually quite enjoy fighting. So that was that kind of like light bulb moments on lots of levels, but it set the scene. I, I realized very early on that was going to be the way I had to live my life. I was going to have to advocate. I was going to have to fight. I was going to have to constantly know my rights and where there weren't rights, find ways around it. You know, it, it, it was a, it was a sad awakening because I didn't want to have to do that. And in, and to your question about how do you keep going with it? A lot of the time, I don't feel like I have a choice. Like I want to just live my life and just do my thing and do the things I enjoy, but there's still so many barriers in the way. And if I, I feel this feeling of like, if I don't fight them, you know, I've got to leave it to someone else to fight them. And what if they don't fight them? Then, then we don't get anywhere. So there's this constant, they call it, I think in my, in this, you know, the concept of this sort of accidental activist, you know, I don't really want to be fighting. I'd rather just be chilling, having a nice life, but I don't really have much choice. And also I know that I have the skills and the resources and now the platform to do it. So I have a responsibility so that it kind of comes all around like that. So resilience is one thing it's there, but I would say there's also this kind of motivational drive behind all of it to just stick two fingers up and say, I, I, don't tell me what I can't do and I'll just keep going. Can I ask what year that was that that happened? 2004. Wow. The thing is, and you're absolutely right, you use the word privilege. And I think that there are probably myself and many others who are listening included who cannot get their head around the fact that that, that, that would happen in the year of 2004. Oh I, I mean, it's just... It happens. Sorry to interrupt you there, but it is such a bugbear for me. People perhaps don't realise how bad it is still 20 years later. So I honestly spent my life trying to say, guys, look, have you seen this? We can't get in. Do you know we can't go to the loo? Do you know that they won't let us in here? It's 2020. You know what I mean? Like there is so many, there are so many barriers still up, you know, buildings we can't get into. I went to 10 Downing Street the other day, 10 Downing Street, and you can't get in there, but there's no permanent access for a wheelchair user. They roll out some little ramp and it's not suit. It's not fit for purpose. The people I was with, two of them couldn't get up that ramp. That is 10 Downing Street. And now don't come at me with, it's an old building because people are more important than buildings. And think if you were a kid with a disability and you saw that, what does that tell you? It tells you, you can't be whoever you want to be in this life. And that stuff, you can hear it in my voice. Oof, gets me riled up so much. Rightly so. And I think that actually, you know, like part of doing this podcast and, you know, mentioning some of those names, Sophie Butler is another one who I forgot to mention who is just phenomenal in this space and, and has also been a guest in the mm -hmm. podcast. You know, we have to open ourselves up to stories that differ from our own, to people's experiences that differ from our own. And I think that, you know, it shouldn't be just on your shoulders to champion that cause. I, I, what I'm trying to say is that as much as I think that it's amazing and wonderful and, you know, in some way within you to to do all the work that you do. I also think that there's a collective response that needs to happen, that it's not just those that are disabled that are, that are fighting the fight. Do you know oh. what I mean? And I, and I think that that's, that's part of, part of what actually needs to happen is that it needs to be both abled and disabled alike that are saying, well, this isn't okay. And I think that the more that we can learn about those stories, you know, even on Twitter, for example, I follow a couple of people who are in wheelchairs and, and you know, the amount of times that I see that they're having issues on trains, they get to a train station, they can't get on the train. They're then waiting around for someone, you know, and, and those are stories that we need to be exposed to. They need to be spoken about because the more we understand that there is 
total inequality, the better we can be equipped to champion and to advocate for those people as well. You are preaching to the converted. I completely agree with you. <laughs> yeah. I completely agree. I've been saying it for years. We can't do this in isolation. And the, and the reality is, mm. okay, so just a couple of things to unpack in, the, in that. Firstly, people like Sophie are so powerful and important. She's from a generation, generation below me. I think she's what, 20, in her late 20s? I'm in my late 30s. Yeah, she's, yeah. The difference, the difference in her lived experience with spinal injury and mine, it's for me remarkable. So she has social media. I didn't have social media when I had my injury. So what that, so what, and what she's doing with that is she's showing people what people like her can do. Um, you know, in the in those in her circumstances, but also what they can't do. Sophie's brilliant at really positioning, you know, disabled joy, but also the struggle. And so she's a fantastic resource, I think, for anyone who wants to understand our lived experience. Um, plus, she's gorgeous and funny and brilliant. So it's, she's just she's, she's great. amazing. <laughs> and I think those kind of people yeah. are really important for sharing the stories and for. So I would say social media plays a huge part, both for us as a disabled community, to look at what we can do by look, look finding role models but also I would say for the non-disabled community looking in you can really learn and understand our experience through someone who wants to really share their lived experience I mean Sophie puts her life out there and that's her choice and it's wonderful for people to understand you know to go to to learn and social media is a very powerful place for learning I think I mean I've curated my feeds to be following people that I don't know about you know I don't have a friend from every type of group of people out there so if I want to learn about a group I'll go and follow people in that group and that I would encourage everyone to do that with disability as well because I think it would help us no end and to another point you made this working with allies we, we need as a disabled community that kind of camaraderie because the one of the realities is the, by de by design, we are not able to get into a lot of spaces, and so therefore we are cut out of the decision making processes. So therefore, I mean, it's it's literally a physical thing that we can't get to certain spaces or communicate co clearly with people. So so what that means is decisions are getting made without us in spaces where we need to be. So we need it literally physically. We need if we can't get in the meeting room physically because the train won't get us there or whatever whatever reason you can find for us not being able to get there, we need people in the room to, to speak for us. Yes, 100%. And lastly, to your point about sort of storytelling, that's why I wrote, I wrote my book and I work in television because I feel so strongly about the power of storytelling to shift the narrative. I think it's the greatest tool we have. I mean, I put, I list often the tools that we have that would make a difference for my community is increased visibility. So see us out and about more and you'll get just how many there are of us and you'll make sure that you meet our demand. So that I often get a, a told, for example, we're not going to adapt this pub and make it accessible because not enough wheelchair users come. I said, but if you build it, they will come. We don't come because it's not accessible. It's that cycle. The other part is more authentic representation. We need to see disability represented accurately, which is where the likes of people like Sophie and Henry and just normal people doing normal things, but doing them from a different perspective. So Henry's got a spinal cord injury, same as Sophie. They both have very different lives, but they share. He's a painter. You know, she goes out and parties. She does all her thing. These are normal people. We, we need to see the, that representation, normal disabled people, because more often than not in the media, we see one of two tropes. We see the sort of really useless disabled person who can't do anything and they benefit scrounge and they're just awful for society and that's a trope that's been proliferated by 
the government and it helps them to use us as scapegoats whenever the welfare system falls down and we blame us, blame us, disabled people. Are, and that's why you've got so much disabled hate crime. There is so much unemployment. There's so many problems because of that trope. And the flip side, you get the other trope of the superhuman, of the superhero disabled person who can do anything, go anywhere, be everywhere, everything, you know, and is an inspiration. And for so long, I have not wanted to be on the one side, so I embodied the other side. But it's more important that we tell the story of the, the people in the middle. And that's where accurate representation comes in. And I think lastly, the most important thing is getting us, as I said, into the leadership roles. Because once we're in there, mm-hmm. you know, the same as getting women into leadership roles. What happens there? You know, so it's the same thing. You can apply the same reasoning behind needing to integrate women into the workplace, women into, you know, the, the women's rights movement or any other movement, really. We need it. The disabled people, disabled community uh, can benefit in the same ways, if that makes sense. So, yeah, ultimately, there's a lot of work to be done, but allyship would be the ultimate support for us because yeah also bear in mind most of the disabled community struggle with energy levels finances we're too busy trying to stay it costs us an extra 800 pounds a month minimum in the uk if you on average just to live your life if you're disabled so we're up against it so it's you know having the, the it's a privilege to be able to spend time campaigning most people are just trying to survive you know, so I'm, that's why another reason why I'm, I'm, I take what I've got and I try and use it because ultimately not everyone's in a position to be able to do so. It's, it's tough. Very tough. That is shocking. And that was a really brilliant answer. And, and I appreciate you sharing that. I think it brings me nicely onto my next point, which is really about the media. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to Give Me Strength. You have managed to break into one of the most difficult and inaccessible environments, which is broadcast TV, you know, notoriously uh, kind of narrow in terms of who they select to be represented on our TVs. And you have managed to break through. And that is a phenomenal feat. And just it's incredible. And it's really lovely to see that success. I wondered if you could talk about the experience of breaking through and what that was like. And also, you know, we have seen some progress in terms of diversity on our screens and within the media, but, you know, I'm sure that you'll agree with me that there is, there is so much more that we can do and we should be doing. So it would be nice to hear about both those sides. So I uh, stumbled into television completely accidentally. I, I had no, no intention of becoming a TV presenter. It wasn't a goal or a dream. It wasn't even on my radar. I came out of hospital and I went straight back to art school, as I told you, um, with a few barriers in the way that I had to get over, but got there, did art school. And about halfway through my, um, my degree, I left that one college and went to Goldsmiths College uh, to do a degree in fine art. And halfway through that degree, I got a call from the BBC asking if I would be willing to audition for... Um, a reality show that they were casting of disabled people. So they were taking 11 disabled people across Nicaragua on foot, in inverted commas, um, from the east to the west coast for massive series for BBC Two. And it was going to be really groundbreaking and blah, blah, blah. And I was in, like, before you could say, you know, before they hung up the phone, I was like, yeah, I want to come. So um, I went, I auditioned, I got in, and I joined this t- party of people to go on this extraordinary yeah, challenge across Nicaragua. And that was a year after my injury. So that was a kind of um, my first dipping of my toe into television. Uh, I didn't have the best time on the trip, on the trip itself, but that doesn't really matter. The thing that I really realized in that moment was 
television is a really great space and a very, again, another tool in the fight for changing people's perceptions of disability. This is really cool. So I really wanted then to do more. But the opportunity for people like me to actually do anything other than reality TV or present on stuff about disability was really small, really, really small. Talk about glass ceilings. I mean, there was like a handful of disabled presenters that had gone that had made it through at that point and they weren't mainstream they weren't you know household names by any by any means so it was still very much like a case of people kept saying when I'd say oh is there a chance I could do this and I I think I got an agent and I was trying to try to level up and just kept getting met with this response of yeah but why would you be presenting this why why you and I was a bit like well why not me and they were like you know there was always this kind of I needed to justify why a wheelchair, they needed to justify why a wheelchair user would be on telly if it wasn't for a reason to do with their disability. So everything was very much geared to that. So the first jobs I ever got were very much about, I had to talk about my story, my disability, and it was all about disability. So the first documentary I did was about my car crash, which actually was a fantastic documentary. It was all about how the biggest killer of young people is um, driving. And so I went in and unpacked my life story and learned about the problems that young people were facing. So that was really insightful. But again, it was like my trauma had to be relived. And then I had I did another documentary about uh, human rights abuse in Ghana, uh, which was based off the a, a really damning report from Human Rights Watch about just abuse that was happening to disabled children and adults over there and did a documentary for the BBC about that. So you can see where I'm going with this. It was all kind of disability, disability. And I didn't really want to do that. I wanted to do travel or whatever, art or something that was nothing to do with me and disability. But I, there was no chance. So I painted and I just lived my life, just cracked on. And then everything changed when the Paralympics came to London in 2012 and Channel 4 started recruiting for disabled talent. And I, I wasn't part of that first recruitment drive. I, I did get a small job in the 2012 coverage, but I, I was just like reading the weather or something. And it was a really small little role. But I then fast forward four years and I got recruited. I got um, I got the part. I basically landed one of the lead anchor roles in the 2016 Paralympics in Rio. And that's when everything changed because Channel 4 basically recognized that a disabled talent was worth working with b that there was opportunities to do more than just disability sport and you know there was op- there was op- options and there was potential so i got given the i got given the opportunity to ask you know oh, sorry they asked me what would you like to do next and that was me i said i want to do documentaries i want to do travel i want to do hard hitting stuff i want to do stuff to do with disability stuff nothing to do with disability i want it all and uh, they met that that and really head on and and off I went and so I I I was really I couldn't quite believe my luck because it was it was so hard to do as you said to get in the in the room but um yeah I've I've got in the room and I've hung on for dear life ever since really just trying to keep keep in there because it's not straight it's not easy really not easy um but it's so much fun is there anyone really that's kind of helped champion you in those spaces is there anyone that kind of has really been on your journey someone that's really been like you know what we need to be doing this Uh, you know you mentioned channel four but I know you've now made the swap to doing stuff with ITV as well is there anyone along that journey that you think that person really backed me and I you know I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for it I'd say to answer your question I don't think I have had Outside of my sort of management team, you know, the wonderful people that represent me, some of my agents or whomever I've had along the way who have obviously been brilliant and helped as much as they can. I haven't really had anyone. Um, 
it's it's a interesting graph. yeah it's a it's a serious graph to keep getting in the room and I I think mm. I, I I don't know if that's helpful to explain that but I think it's just that people might look at it and think oh it's once you're in you're in and it's off you off you go and you just get offered jobs and you know you'll keep working and that's a, it's absolutely not the case for me absolutely I still have to push and get I mean I got my shows cancelled and you know jobs given to other people last minute and like all the same stuff that everybody else has um but then also layer into that the fact that I have this disability and it does make my space on tv um it's a there's a smaller space for me to take up so yeah it's a it's it's a shame I wish that I had a mentor I should I always think I should get a mentor I think mentors are like the great unlocker but no yeah. yeah I mean there's been people along the way wonderful people talent actually who've really supported me and given me courage and helped me people like Simon Rimmer who worked was on um Sunday brunch he was always an amazing help and then there's I don't know there's loads of people that have just I've, li- I've lent on but I haven't heard mm. of anyone really I guess that kind of leads me to then talk about your your own media production company because I guess what you've done is well I've existed in this world it's been really hard and there haven't been maybe enough people championing people like me to really progress so let me go and write my own narrative let me go and do my own thing and I think it's just incredible because you know sometimes when when it feels as though you're banging and banging and banging on that door and you know like I felt this many times my career that you, you go why isn't no one listening? Yeah. Okay, I'll go and do my own thing. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, and I guess to, to have caught the eye of Reese Witherspoon and, you know, Hello Sunshine, who we know, like, you know, I know is this huge production company now is phenomenal, by the way. Like, <laughs> let's take a moment, shall we? That is incredible. Oh, so tell me a little bit about that and tell me how that came about. Oh, thanks, love. I, I still can't believe it. When you say it out loud, I'm still like, have I done that? How did I do that? Um, yeah, you did. I did. <laughs> I did. Oh my god! Um, it came around in a, in a very convoluted way, but basically, I I'm making a documentary at the moment in production, and it's co-produced with Hello Sunshine. I set up this production company, which is called Making Space Media, and we're co-producing this documentary, and it which will go out next year on Channel Four, and this and that kind of was the beginning of our, my relationship with Hello Sunshine, um, who have an unscripted department in the UK. People probably don't know that because they're more known for their scripted stuff. They're brilliant films and everything like that, but they have an unscripted department in the UK, which is who I've been working with, the brilliant um, Sarah Lazenby, who heads that up. She and I have been working together for, oh gosh, a couple of years now, basically working on ideas and stuff. And so that's when I started working with Hello Sunshine and then I set up my production company and then they offered this partnership and you know you do not say no to that that is like the greatest gift imaginable to have a brand of that caliber and scale and also a brand that completely aligns with everything that I want to do but just for disabled women everything they've done for the narrative for disabled sorry everything that they've done for shifting the narrative for women in in the mainstream I want to do for disabled women um and that's so it's just a match in heaven in my opinion I'm so grateful for it it's early days. We basically announced our partnership in August. Um, so we've been working together for a couple of months now. And I I can't begin to tell you what it's like working in an environment of such empowered and supportive women. I've never had it in my life. I've never had anything like it. I've 
I'm in LA at the moment and I was at a, an event with them with Reese and everybody on Saturday this talking I was speaking on a panel and I have to say there was just this sense of like you know we often see this perspective of women being competitive and we don't support each other and all that stuff I think it's to an extent that's true but there's also this other narrative we don't see or, or celebrate enough which is the sisterhood the absolute there is room at everyone for this table vibe you know, we can make space for everybody. And that's what Hello Sunshine does. And I'm I'm so grateful to be a part of the Hello Sunshine family. And also I've just been onboarded as part of their collective. They've just launched a class of 15 women from all around the world who they're basically going to grow and mentor and help and support. And I've been selected. So I'm, I can't, I'm pinching myself every day. I can't believe it's happening. Um, and I'm so, so excited about it, not only from a personal perspective, but the what I want to build and where I hope it will go will be my life's work. It will be the thing that I will be the most proud of because I really do want to open all these doors for disabled talent. And yes, people listening might be like, well, you just need talent. It doesn't matter if you're disabled or not. But the fact that for so long, disabled people have been left out of the workplace for so many different reasons makes me just, I'm now in that sort of other, uh, my pendulum has swung so far to the side of the disabled that I actually only want to hire disabled women and people because it's just... For so long that has been not the not possible and so like even today i've just recruited a, an editor to help us edit some of the content that we're creating who has a high level spinal cord injury and i just find that for me that's like ugh, i love it so much so representation on and off camera is the goal end goal we, we yeah we use the phrase on this podcast and i've used it many times so those who are listening are probably like yawn but i i always say you cannot be what you cannot see and i genuinely i really fundamentally believe that you have to have representation mm -hmm. because you need that sense of she's doing it so i can too mm -hmm. you know and i think that that's so crucial and i guess and that's you know, the thing credit to hello sunshine <laughs> it's really interesting to say that because i i wholeheartedly agree with you but be, having been somebody that has not been able to see it, to believe it, and constantly having to mm. fabricate this this life, yeah. I'm like, what yeah. on earth? I I would have never in a million years mm. thought I would be partnering with someone like Reese Witherspoon's company. Do you know what I mean? And this is a downfall. So what I would also say to your point is, yeah, seeing is believing. That's the main agenda. We need to see representation. But if you can't see it, doesn't mean you can't be it. And I think that's another part of this whole wild journey that I'm on as a disabled person is that there is that it goes back to the point we we're making earlier that you've got to define things for yourself because so many people will tell you that the, the things are not possible and it, it's it's extraordinary how how much we believe that story that line and, and and don't go what do you mean what why why do why are you saying that we just go yep okay no I couldn't do that but I, I keep saying to myself I'm like God I can't believe you're doing that I can't believe you just did that but I did it. And I hadn't seen it before. So I think you're right. And that's why the work that we're all doing to, to shift representation to be more inclusive is, is, is important. But I should also say, if you can't see it, you can still be it. It's still there. You know what I mean? Um, that is a, a really important point. Yeah. And, and on that, and I think let's just go there because I think this this is really important for us to understand. It's really important for you to talk about is how do you deal with the toll that that takes on you? That's a lot of pressure on your shoulders. That's been a lot of probably compounding mm. stress, work, anxiety, so many other things thrown in there. Like 
what is that genuinely like for you? How have you dealt with that? You know, there might be people who are listening who are in a similar position that, you know, in, in different areas. How do you take on the task of being the first? Oh, God, what a question, Alice. I, it's brilliant. It's a brilliant question. I'm just going to unpack it and think about how I feel about it because it was weird for me the first time somebody said I was applying for a job and I'd been working in television for maybe four or five years at that point, you know, a fledgling baby presenter. I was still finding my feet. Um, I was still working out who I was. I was quite a generic presenter. I was being used on content that was a bit sort of not really me. And it was, it was, it was great time, lots of learning. Anyway, I was applying for a job at Ofcom, um, randomly. Um, and I really wanted to work at Ofcom because I thought there was a way we could change representation from that side too. And I really wanted this little job. It was like really important to me, not a little job, it's a big job. Um, and I was talking to a friend about how to apply for the job and they said, you're being really modest you need to say you are the first disabled female presenter who's mainstreamed in the UK. And I I remember looking at him being like, don't be so silly. I I was, I felt really embarrassed by saying that. I say, I still feel embarrassed saying it out loud now because for some, for some reason, reason that, well, there are fact that factually that's, that's questionable because there have been disabled presenters before me. But I think what he was trying to say is you've leveled into a space that no one's gone into before. And uh, you need to be proud of that. And I remember thinking two things. One, wow, cool. That's, that's cool. Um, maybe I'll take that. Okay. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll take that. The other part of me was like, what the fuck? Why am I the first? Where is everybody? And that feeling really of like, what is going on? Why are there so few of us? I can't, you know, that feeling of like, it enrages me quite a lot being, so being the first to do something is scary. There's so much imposter syndrome. It's it's disabling. I have a huge amount of it. I'm constantly thinking I'm going to get caught and get in trouble and get like, someone's going to go, yeah, no, she's not meant to be here. There's always that. That's everywhere I go. I'm always the only disabled person in the bloody room. That's always there. So that's, that's really challenging being that one, but there's this huge responsibility and frustration that I'm the first or, and I want it to change uh, urgently. A, because I'm, it gets lonely and scary and, and I don't want to be the first I'd like to be a crew. It's so nice having a, you know, working with other disabled people. Oh my God, it's like the best feeling in the world when I'm in a room and there's other disabled people in it. I just felt suddenly, it's like being a woman and being the only one in the room. It's it's really nice when you have another chick with you and you're like, oh, it's great to be here, isn't it? And I just like, I, I don't like it and I'd love it and I'm proud of it and I'll keep doing it. But I also, it's not, it's not, it's a strange space to, to take up. But that's why my company is called Making Space because really keen to to spread the message that we are we deserve to take up space it's for myself it's a ma- it's a message to myself a reminder we can take space up and we must make space for people like people well for everybody um so yeah i i think i don't know and i i hope i hope the way things are going there'll be many more firsts but and I'll also create firsts for other people. That is so, uh, you know, such a brilliant answer. And I, I have no doubt that there will be many more firsts. But also, yeah, it is about then passing the baton on and creating, you know, making space and 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 being able to champion other voices as well. Because I feel like that's probably just as rewarding as doing it yourself first time around. Oh, 100%. You know? 100%. I, I, I didn't really want to get into TV myself. I wanted to just use TV to change perceptions so I just put myself in that space but I actually just would rather now build 
content around other people's, people like Sophie or Henry, their stories. I'm more interested in their stories, you know, and I'd love to make content with those. That's that's the agenda is to to position other people's stories because there's a million stories within our community that have not been told. And I've told mine. So I'm like, like right, what's next? <laughs> so it's it's exciting. Now, look, Sophie, I could talk to you all evening, but I have one final question. I guess it's quite a big one, but you obviously have such a fire within you and it is amazing to see someone with such a sense of ambition. But I wonder whether you still have moments where you're challenged by maybe your mental health. You find it quite a big burden to be the, one of the only voices who are really championing others. How do you deal with your mental well-being? How is that something that you tend to address and check in with? You actually referenced earlier that, you know, you, you, you still have to have moments where you check in with yourself. And I loved that phrase that, you know, having to have a little moment where you breathe and you readdress the balance and you, you, you know, kind of make sure that you're okay first, which is, should be the most important thing. But how have you managed that over the last few years, which I imagine have been incredibly demanding, as you've shared? I think I've got two answers to that question, Alex. Firstly, I have coping mechanisms that I've put into place that have been sort of honed over the last 20 years of being disabled. So, for example, I draw and my drawings, I think people would look at them and think, oh, my God, she's terrifying because some of them are really dark. And But that's my outlet of dealing with frustrations, sadness all of the pain that comes with this lived experience. I put it into painting or drawing. That's one. The other is music. I'm I'm never without music in my ears, really. And I'm with other people, obviously, because I need it to give me feelings that I struggle to access because I'm a very pushy, I look forward. I don't st- sit still well. Um, so I'm very kind of like, I need to, it's the checking in thing. It's like, right, how do I want to feel? I need, music gives me those, the feels. I do have those two. The other is my work. I'm a, I am a workaholic and I, I love my work. So I know that when my mental health is struggling, actually I get a huge amount of relief from the work because it, if I'm struggling, say with, you know, sort of feelings of depression or, or anxiety, if I apply myself into my work, I just, everything just starts to fall away and I feel a lot more focused and a lot less actually uh, sort of I don't feel those feelings as much I start to kind of they yeah they become contextualized I'm able to put perspective into them and I don't know my work is is very healing for me it's why I do what I do Um, but I would also uh, respond to your answer and say that sometimes that feeling of like you, you made the point there of the most important thing you can do is make sure you're okay and I think that is true, but I think we have moved quite far recently, too far perhaps, into that space of looking after oneself. And whilst that is important, because you can't look after anyone else if you haven't looked after yourself, we know that to be true. Um, I would also say one of the greatest sources of sort of um, healing and um, ongoing strength is helping other people. And I, I literally feel it's that selfish thing isn't it you feel better when you help other people so I think for my mental health I also don't always think about myself I think about the other the bigger picture the the lives that I wanted to help or change um but I will find I will caveat all of that by saying I have not got it worked out you find me at certain days and I am a mess I am so tired and stressed and everything's chaotic and I, my mental health is suffering. You know, I'm the same as everybody else. I don't think there's a panacea that we can just offer 
to anyone, you know, like I think there's there's ways of working it out and exercise gets lost because I'm busy and I'm traveling and that sets me back. And, you know, same as everybody else, same as everybody else. It's messy. It's messy over here. You know, I, I live a messy life because I just I take on too much. But at the same time, I made that choice too. So I'd reconcile with that, I think, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, and look, life is messy. We all have messiness. Yeah. And actually, we need to embrace the messiness. Yeah. If we aim for this kind of like perfect squeaky clean life, you're basically setting yourself up to fail, I feel. Um, my final question, final, final, final question. I We've spoken a lot over the last hour about allyship, about how we can better advocate for disabled people. And I think that, you know, I'd love to close with with something that I think you're going to be amazing at, do, at doing, which is to, you know, kind of, I guess, tell my listeners, tell the people that are tuning in, how tuning in lol I sound like I'm on the radio those that are tuning in <laughs> sorry ignore that okay back to seriousness <laughs> to those that are listening yes um very local radio um but 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 genuinely how we can all be better allies there is absolutely something that every single person who is listening can do that can better advocate for those who are disabled and I think that it's really important that we have those conversations and we hear from people like you you know what can people do which I think is is really important I'm going to steal this from one of my heroes and an advocate called Sinead Burke um, who says that there are two questions that are always really helpful to ask the first question is, is asking is this accessible in everything that you do whether it's the content that you put out whether it's the meeting you have whether it's the party you throw Whatever it is, just ask, is it accessible? And if you don't know the answer, ask disabled people. There's consultants, there's Google. You can go where you need to find the answers. But that, that's a really helpful question. Is this, is this accessible? Because what that means is, say, for example, if you're in a meeting and someone's putting notes on the board, but there's somebody who's visually impaired, they can't see it. Just the, the, just the trigger, just that having that little seed of that question in your mind, like, is this accessible? And, and, and addressing the answer if it's not that's one way you could if everybody did that world would change overnight uh you know the owner of the shop or the whatever it is like the teacher in the classroom if you just ask that question that can apply to physical sensory or any other kind of disability i think is this accessible the other is when you're in rooms where decisions are being made i think it's the question of asking this is important is who's not in the room and if you can see that there's a group that's not represented within that space, try and find a way to to enable it to be represented. Um, we see a lot of consultancy going on with disabled people at the moment. That's fine and, and important, but also hire in, make your workspaces accessible, hire in. Um, and just, I think it's so important that people actually just look at their teams around them or look at their friends around them and kind of, hold on, where is that, where is that person from that group? We, if, if they're not here, we need to bring that person in. And it's as simple as that. So is this accessible and who's not in the room? I think those things, if you can keep them in your mind, it's, it would be it would help us as a community at no end. Brilliant answer. I also love Sinead Burke. She's exceptional. Yes, she is. Yes, she's amazing. And as are you, Sophie, as are you. I am so happy that we got to make this work. Thank you for joining me from LA, the glamour of it. Oh, <laughs> 
Love. Thank and, you for um, having I'm me. just really, yeah, really, really appreciative for your time, for your wisdom and everything that you're doing is exceptional. So I really encourage people to follow you, support you and to champion your work because it is brilliant. So thank you so, so much. We didn't get to talk about, oh, your campaigning. We haven't even spoken about that, which I could go into. I'm guessing we're going to have to do it another time because there's so much that I wanted to talk about in that space. Oh, but if anyone wants to follow the campaigning and the, the incredible work that Sophie is doing, find it on her Instagram. She's a brilliant person to follow and, and you can kind of f- read more there, but um, we'll have to get you back on. Oh, any <laughs> excuse. It's been so lovely to chat. And I, I actually echo back everything you just said. You're a wonderful person to follow as well. I, I really appreciate the content you put out. There's stuff that you've said that really resonates with me and I really appreciate how you authentically show up as well. So it's, yeah, it's been a real pleasure to be here. Much love. Thank you. so much for listening i really hope you enjoyed that episode i would love it if you could take some time to rate review and follow the podcast as it really helps others to find it we have a new episode dropping each week so this will also ensure you don't miss out see you next time insanity group